What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we're offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership in the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership in the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to welcoming you to the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. In association with both Wonderfest and uh, as part of our Good Lit series that's funded by the Bernard Osher Foundation. I'd like to welcome Ashley Jean Yeager, um, science writer and the author of Bright Galaxies, Dark Matter and Beyond. It's the story of the life of astronomer Vera Rubin. Um, This is one of our over 600 programs that we've done since the pandemic started, uh, where we're doing it without an audience, uh, but bringing to you uh, all of the audience, uh, for all of the audiences uh, that listen to podcasts uh, and our YouTube channel, Facebook the programs that we brought to you live here in San Francisco before the pandemic and that, that hopefully will be coming back very soon. Um, but now uh, let's talk to Ashley uh, about this very interesting story about a female astronomer um, from the 20th century who was one of the first uh, scientists who, who kind of supported the idea of dark matter. So Ashley, first, welcome to the Commonwealth Club and a great book. Wonderful, wonderful job. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited and honored to be here. Good. So let's, uh, let's start with a little bit of background about Vera. So <laughs> we have this woman fighting against the, the, the old boys club, uh, basically, um, <laughs> you know, to, to make progress, uh, very successful at it. Why don't you just give an mm-hmm. idea about, about her, the span of her life? I mean, she only passed away a few years ago um, in her 80s, I think, um, and, yep. but, but really got active early on. And maybe we can set up how, how she did this. Yeah. Uh, So Vera Rubin was born in the 1920s. Um, She grew up um, mostly in Washington, D.C. And at the age of about 10, I guess you could say, she was uh, sharing a room with her sister and looked over and there were these row of windows in their bedroom. And she just became fascinated by the stars. Um, She would spend every night looking out the window, watching the stars, tracing their paths across the night sky. And while she was doing this, she was trying to read about scientists. Um, So Benjamin Franklin, uh, Isaac Newton, and she also came across the story of Mariah Mitchell, Mm -hmm. who uh, really kind of put um, astronomy, professional astronomy on the map for the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, Mariah Mitchell discovered a comet with a telescope And because of that, was awarded a a medal from the the, um, King of Denmark Mm -hmm. and and then went on to um, found an observatory at Vassar College. And so Vera learned about all of these different stories and and then eventually ended up at Vassar 
mm-hmm. to study astronomy. And um, one thing about, that's important about that, you mm-hmm. study astronomy at Vassar. How big was the department? <laughs> uh, she was the only student right. in the department. <laughs> yes. I thought that so, should be made uh, clear. It's, it's a different time. <laughs> yes. This is the 1940s, just after the World War II had ended, and she was the only uh, astronomy major at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know. Um, but they had, had a little observatory, kind of... right? They had a little observatory yeah. and a professor, so that's not too bad. They did. Yeah. They did. They, uh, they had a little observatory, and that was actually kind of where she got some of her first hands-on experience going out and making photographic plates of the night sky and different objects in the night sky. And um, I think kind of where she really learned to love doing, kind of going through that process of making those observations. Um, and about the same time, she ended up uh, meeting Robert Rubin, who became her husband. And uh, he was a graduate student at Cornell. Mm-hmm. at the time. And as, as Vera was thinking about what her next steps were, uh, she had applied to Harvard. She had applied to several other universities to do her graduate work in astronomy and ultimately decided to go to Cornell with Bob. And I think this is something that I talk about in the book. This was kind of a really, I think, fundamental decision that in some ways put her on the path to being this luminary in astronomy because she was able to ask questions as a graduate student that maybe uh, she wouldn't have been encouraged to ask at a place like Harvard or Princeton. She kind of had that uh, intellectual or creative freedom to, Mm -hmm. to dig into something very different than a traditional question. And, and actually the question was she asked was, does the universe rotate, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, something that's, uh, incredible to think about. And, mm-hmm. and her logic made sense uh, in, in asking that question. It was something that George Gamow, one of the, the kind of um, big name cosmologists at the time had posited. And um, the idea was, you know, everything rotates, right? Mm-hmm. Um, planets rotate around, or they, you know, they orbit the sun, stars and galaxies orbit a galaxy. So why wouldn't galaxies orbit a kind of center point in the universe? Mm-hmm. And so she really went after that question and tried to collect data to, to find an answer. And um, she did find some It's pretty unexplained... bold to think that you can get any data to, to, to support an answer on that, right? Right. You know yes, I mean? <laughs> exactly. Especially at that time. I mean, yeah. this is late 1940s now. Um, you're just starting to have these galaxy surveys where... You're, tr- you're starting to see kind of threads of, of long tendrils of galaxies, some of the beginnings of the large-scale structure of the universe starting mm-hmm. to emerge. And, um, yeah, so she was trying to, to kind of get the different velocities of galaxies as they move through the universe to, to look for this universal rotation. And um, she did find some kind of strange... Um, unusual, unexplainable behavior. Mm-hmm. And she presented that at w- one of the big astronomy meetings um, and uh, kind of uh, got the reaction that um, no one really believed her. They were like, yeah. no, this, this can't be right. right. This, you, you, you don't have the data to make this claim. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you need to go back and, and do more work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that kind of really stuck with her mm-hmm. uh, as a criticism of like, okay, I constantly will need more data 
to confirm what uh, whatever conclusion I draw. Mm-hmm. And you have to remember at this time, she wasn't able to go to the telescope herself. Mm-hmm. Um, there were no facilities that were open to women in the late 40s, early 1950s. Just out of, so ha- she was, out of habit that they didn't do it? Or, or are there very, so very few astronomers that were women? Um, or what, is there anything in the basis for why that was true so late? Because it's fairly um, late, you know, in the 40s and yeah. 50s to say women can't go and look into that. I mean, yeah, I mean... Is there, um, is it, or is it, was it just a habit, like in accounting or, or you know, something like that, where there were so few women as well? I think, I, I think you could say that, but then there were also... Um, arguments that there weren't really facilities for women. So Uh one of the kind of famous (laughs) stories for Vera is about this bathroom at Palomar Observatory and Mm -hmm. how essentially the application said women can apply because we don't have the facilities to accommodate women. Um, And and so that kind of (laughs) segmented everything just for men. So all they needed Um, was an all gender bathroom and everything would have been fine. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Such a, so, so tough to solve some point. of these problems, right? You know, you think yeah. <laughs> how how difficult was that? Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> but, no, but it's true. It, it's funny. It's just a funny, funny thing that people use as a block to stop something from happening, basically. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. So, sorry to interrupt the story, but that oh. it's a very interesting part of part of the story is what what mm-hmm. stopped her. You know, such tiny yes. little, apparently tiny little things. You know, but mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And she actually had um, this memory of um, going to Lowell Observatory when she was a graduate student, mm-hmm. and she saw all these male astronomers making observations and kind of publishing all these papers, and it, it made her feel inadequate. Mm-hmm. It made her really question they're so far ahead of me. Can I actually do this mm-hmm. with given the limitations that I have? Um, and so that was kind of always a question in the back of her mind. And, and for some reason, she, she pushed forward and kept trying to challenge it. And, and I think a lot of that was from support from her husband. He, he very much wanted her to have a career mm-hmm. and, and made a lot of decisions to make that possible for her. Mm-hmm. So she, she breaks through eventually and says, mm-hmm. OK, I'm, you know, and, and each step of the way, it's basically that she does something fairly outstanding and, and makes a presentation. And each time there's more data, there's more. It's more convincing. It's a little bit more reliable. People are mm-hmm. getting used to the fact she's a woman doing this. Right. And, and, mm-hmm. and so eventually yeah. she breaks through. But it takes how long before she actually gets time on the on the things? I think in the 60s, if I remember correctly, it took yes. until then. Right. Yeah, it really, um, she really wasn't able to go and observe until the early 1960s. And so um, I think that was the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, she really coveted uh, being at the telescope because it was so Mm -hmm. sacred almost. Yeah. Um, So what happens is uh, Kitt Peak National Observatory in Arizona opens and when it does open, it's open to women. So mm-hmm. she applies for time there. And around the same time, her husband has the opportunity to go on sabbatical mm-hmm. and uh, picks to go to La Jolla, California. And where he picks to go, the, the Burbridges, Margaret and Jeffrey Burbage are mm-hmm. there. And, and they're kind of, you know, um, world-renowned astronomers at this point, mainly for their underst- their contribution to understanding how stars make their energy. Mm-hmm. And 
So Vera asks them if she can work with them. And, and that's another opportunity to go to the telescope with mm -hmm. them. Um, and she kind of gains more skills. And that's where she really starts working on the, the question that will become her central thesis that, that kind of gets us to the point of understanding that the universe is made of stuff that we still don't understand. Mm -hmm. And what happens is um, Jeffrey and Margaret Burbage are looking at galaxies and they're looking at how stars orbit the galaxy, what, what mm -hmm. speed they have kind of going around the center of the galaxy. And they're looking mainly at stars close into the center of the galaxy and recording those speeds. And the assumption is at that time that, you know, um, they're only going to look at stars a certain distance from the center of the galaxy because just like in the solar system, the, the speeds of stars farther out will drop off. And, mm. and that is just what everyone assumed. It was written papers over and over again. And no one really said, hey, let's try to find stars farther out from the center of the galaxy. Right. And, and so then, you know, the, the, the example was that the solar system, yes. uh, the solar system, the planets do the speeds do drop off. Okay. Why, why don't yes. you describe this is a really big issue. And why don't you describe <laughs> what it is? There's a central in, in the case of the solar system, there's a central sun <laughs> and then there's yeah. the planets going around it. But yeah. do they, I mean, everyone's familiar with crack the whip, for example. You know, <laughs> the, this game, you know, and of course, the, the outside person uh, ends up going faster than they than they possibly can and goes flying off. So, right. so there is something like that going on in mm -hmm. a solar system, and they assumed yeah. it would be true for galaxies. So that's the yes. basis for, for their assumption, and they, it's easier to do the stars closer, and so that's all they did. Yep. But, but so that, Vera, yeah. Vera said, let's look at this differently. So go ahead. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. Oh, no, no, that was, so, a, great, so, that was a great explanation. So, so uh, why is it that in the solar system, not why, but, but in the solar system, when the planets go around, they go at different speeds? So everybody made um, this assumption. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Pluto is, mm. is very, very far from the sun. Mm -hmm. And so the gravity on it is, is not as great. And so it kind of just plods along. Mm -hmm. Well, if you look at Mercury, Mercury is kind of very close in. And it's just whipping around the sun super fast. Right. Um, and, and so it's basically kind of what's pulling on those planets. Um, and, and just the difference in the amount of gravity that you have. Um, to kind of affect those speeds. I'm a, yeah, but we'll, we'll get to this a little bit later. But in the galaxies, uh, the central core, whatever it is, some people think black holes, some people think I know, other things, but the central core of a spinning galaxy is only a small percentage of all the mass in the galaxy. Right. Right. Whereas right. in the solar system, <clears throat> our sun is something like over 99% of the, of the mass in the solar system. Right. And, and therefore that, that might be part of the picture too. So, yes. Okay. So Absolutely. everyone made this assumption and Vera, yeah. uh, that, that the galaxies would behave the way the solar system did. And Vera wasn't so sure. This is her, her big contribution in, into the dark matter thing. So we'll, we'll yes. look at the research in a little while, but tell, tell a little bit more about how she went about doing this then. Right. Cause she's yeah. not no um, longer looking at, does the universe spin? Uh, no. She's now, yeah. now on to this issue. This is what she's studying. Yeah. Yeah. She, after, after that, after asking that question about whether the universe spun, she kind of really got into how an individual galaxy spins. And mm -hmm. so that's kind of how she gets to this point of looking at these different stars to, to understand how a galaxy is put together. And, um, and so she does, she starts to question this assumption and, and really with her students at Georgetown, because um, she did her PhD at Georgetown and then ended up staying 
on as faculty there and took on some students. And they actually helped her first start to ask this question about the Milky Way. So our own galaxy that we're in, uh, really trying to find stars very, very far from the center of the galaxy and, and much farther than where the sun sits from the center of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. And, and try to kind of understand, do these these stars move quickly? Do they, do, do they move kind of more slowly? Do they plot along? And um, our galaxy is kind of hard to work with because we're inside of it. Uh, <laughs> so it makes it very hard to get a sense of what's going on. I thought that was a very so, interesting part of your story. Was you know the people were much more confused about the Milky Way and trying to figure out what's going on than than the ones that were much more distant because you can look at it from yeah. the outside and they learned much more about galaxies from the further away galaxies and then mm-hmm. applied it to the Milky Way and tried to figure out if it's true here. I thought yeah, that was that was interesting. True. Didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So she's asking this question. She's working with her students and. And also had been influenced by the Burbages. And she gets to this point where she's kind of juggling a lot of different things. She's juggling teaching. She's uh, juggling going to the observatory and doing her research. Her family uh, kind of uh, trying to figure out how to navigate departmental politics. Um, (laughs) And so she gets to a point that she she feels like, okay, something's got to give here. Mm -hmm. And she decides that uh, the thing that she want, would want to give up is teaching. Um, so she goes and asks for a job at the Department of Terrestrial Magnetism, which is um, part of the Carnegie Institute. And uh, there are researchers there who are, are asking the same question about galaxies, and they're working in, in radio uh, astronomy, radio wavelengths. Mm-hmm. And she's obviously, she's working in the visible wavelengths, what we can see. And so after some deliberation, they finally do decide to hire her. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's the first uh, female staff scientist uh, at, the, at the department. And, and that leads for some interesting um, onboarding practices, which happen to happen on April Fool's Day, April 1st. Um, <laughs> so she shows up and they have no paperwork for her. And yeah. of course, at first they think she's a secretary and she has to explain like, no, I, I'm a staff scientist and... And what was really interesting, and I think, again, a kind of crucial moment in her career is um, the director at the time had set up two offices for her. He had set up one office with one of the radio astronomers, and then he had set up another office for her um, with this very gifted instrumentalist, uh, Kent Ford, who was creating this device that was essentially would take photons from very faint objects and magnify them so that you could see stars very, very far away, mm-hmm. which became key to Vera's work. And so she moved in with Kent Ford and um, he told me <laughs> several years, lo- a long time later, m- many decades later that she just never moved out. <laughs> <laughs> so that the started the beginning of their collaboration. Mm-hmm. And what she did with him is she used this instrument that he had to, to look for very faint stars in our neighboring galaxy, Andromeda. Mm-hmm. Um, and start to track the speeds of those stars as they orbited the galaxy. Mm-hmm. And this was late 1960s, um, and, and she starts to notice something very odd, uh, even in, in some of the first observations that they make, that those stars far out aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're mm-hmm. moving way too fast for, um, if you were using the assumption that the 
galaxy would work like a solar system. Mm -hmm. um, and we could actually, you know, show one of these slides here. Okay, great. Um, you can get up the slides that she, she has? Yeah. Okay, great. So, so this starts to get into the, the meat of Vera's work. Um, mm -hmm. These are called rotation curves. And so essentially what you're seeing is you're seeing the Andromeda galaxy, uh, M31, as it's labeled there. Mm -hmm. And on the x-axis, this is the, the distance of a star is from the center of the galaxy. And on the y-axis, uh, you're looking at how quickly that star orbits the center of the galaxy. And so if you were following kind of that solar system assumption, what you would think that you would see is the curve would kind of go up, dip, go up again, and then drop off mm -hmm. and have the stars really far out, kind of going really, really slow around the center of the galaxy. Um, but what you see here, and this is what Vera started to observe, is that that didn't happen. The speeds didn't drop off. They were, those stars really far out we're zooming around the galaxy at, at roughly the same speeds as stars much closer in. Mm -hmm. So that just, kind just of just for clarification's sake. Uh, for cl yeah. So uh, we 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 have a center and we have this distance way out here on the chart, the ones that are way out of the galaxy. I'm going to talk about something about that in a second. But mm -hmm. the speed that they're going, 200 something kilometers per second, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. that's the same or relatively the same as the, the stars in, but they have a much yeah. bigger distance to go around. So they're not, right. they're not going around in a crack the whip sort of fashion. They're going around at the same speed. And so they're, they're orbiting the center of the galaxy still takes them much, much longer than the ones that are yes. at the center. Mm -hmm. Do I have that right? You have that right. Okay, yes. great. Uh, I think yeah. the other thing that's interesting about the picture is you, you, you talk about in your book, when we think about galaxies, we're, we're thinking about the central thing with the cloud of stars around it. But you're saying that every galaxy is actually a big halo, a, a spherical halo that goes this way, this far out. So, so galaxies, right. in addition to solar systems, have a, a central core. Mm -hmm. And at the core of the galaxy is even a deeper core. But then all the stars that we see, that's still pretty much the center of the galaxy and that the galaxy is surrounded by stuff for, for hundreds of millions of light years around it or whatever that, yeah. that are still in its orbit. Yes. Is that, is that right? Okay. So, yeah. so that makes it clear from the picture here because it looks like these things are outside the galaxy, but you're saying that's really part of the galaxy system still. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. So um, this kind of starts to get to this question mm -hmm. that, 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 that she and others were stumbling on in the, the late 1960s, early 1970s, is that you have these objects really, really far out, kind of farther than where you can see the galaxy and they are moving way faster than astronomers would have expected. And so, you know, people start to question, like, what's going on here? Like, mm -hmm. why, why are these objects super far out moving so fast? Mm -hmm. and, and what they're starting to think about is like, okay, if, if this data is true, if, if these numbers are true, then something out there has to be pulling on those stars. Something mm -hmm. has to be revving them up, just pulling them along, making them go super, super fast. Otherwise, they, they wouldn't be able to kind of stay in the galaxy. They would just be flying off into space. Mm -hmm. And so at about this time, you have theorists who are, who are, you know, they see these observations, they see some other observations about galaxies in clusters also, moving rather quickly. And, um, and so th there comes this point where researchers start to talk about dark matter. And, 
in, in reality, dark matter, the, the term was really kind of coined in the early 20th century as researchers were looking at individual galaxies and also the, these clusters of galaxies. And, and they had this sense that things weren't operating the way astronomers had assumed, that mm. you know there, there, there might be something else out there, whether it's stars that we can't yet detect, whether it's something unknown that we don't know, but th there might be this, this stuff that's pulling everything along, making things move faster, making galaxies interact in ways that we don't understand. At the and beginning, so had, at the beginning, the assumption I, it sounded like from your what you wrote uh, that mm -hmm. the assumption was it was more like dead stars, uh, yeah. the matter of dead stars, old planets, sort of like yeah. the equivalent of asteroid belts. I mean, that, that kind of thing that yeah. you don't really see these things because what you see is the light. But I mean, if you look at a galaxy, there's all these dark spots and that could be filled with stuff that's not luminous. So right. luminous matter is one thing, non-luminous matter. So it wasn't quite so mysterious as it is now where we kind of. Yes have no idea what this is because everything that that people have thought might be dark matter like all the way down to neutrinos doesn't seem to be the thing that makes the numbers come out right right so yes absolutely so it got more mysterious absolutely. as time went on it did it got more <laughs> mysterious okay. as time went on that's right yep so you kind of had these rumblings about dark matter in the 1920s 1930s but no one really took it seriously unfortunately uh, people just thought oh you know how, how can the universe be made of stuff we can't see? Those observations must be wrong. Mm -hmm. and, and really, when Vera returned to this question in the 1970s, she kind of got the same reaction. Um, there were some theorists who were starting to piece together that maybe galaxies had more matter, that maybe they kind of had this spherical halo that encompassed them. Um, mm -hmm. But it kind of wasn't a mainstream idea yet. It was, mm -hmm. you had all these different pieces to suggest that the universe was playing these tricks on us, um, but not everyone was on solid ground that this was really happening. And so I guess what happens is um, Vera publishes these results. She gets some pushback to people saying, oh, well, that's just Andromeda. That's just our neighbor. Maybe mm -hmm. it's an outlier. Um, you, you, know, you really data. have to, yeah, you need more data. You really have to do this in other galaxies. So which she says, fine, I will go do that. And, and she does. And so, you know, late 1970s, she's starting to put this observing program together. And you have to remember, this is really hard. You're looking for stars and galaxies very, very far away. You're trying to measure how quickly they move around that galaxy and, and you can't just use one or two stars. Like you have to have several stars in that galaxy. Mm. So it's a, it's a tall order, but she it just becomes determined that she will do it. And so if you want to show the next slide, mm -hmm. she starts to do this in galaxy after galaxy. And at first, you know, she has five galaxies where she sees the same pattern, right? You, you can, these are all curves rotation curves of different galaxies. Mm -hmm. And essentially you see the same thing, you know, the, the speed starts to go up and then in the most part, they level off, meaning those stars, again, very far out are traveling much faster than what you would expect if you're kind of using that assumption of Newton gra Newtonian gravity and the idea of um, the model of the solar system. 
And so you can see here, I mean, this is kind of 1980, and I think there are 22 galaxies on there. And again, all a very similar pattern, mm -hmm. all still kind of showing that flat rotation curve. Um, and and what she's showing is there are small galaxies, there are mid-sized galaxies, and then kind of down in the bottom, you can see one called UGC 2885. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the largest spiral galaxies in the universe. Mm -hmm. And you have that same pattern. So, I mean, that, that galaxy is massively wide. And even very, very far out at the edge of that galaxy, those stars are still moving super fast. Um, so this paper with, with this data came out in the 1980s, early 1980. And at this point, there had been the theoretical work. There had been two astronomers who had written review articles saying like, we need to take the idea of dark matter seriously. And then I think with Vera coming along and saying like, this isn't just something that we see in one or two galaxies. Mm -hmm. This is something that we see in 20, 30, 40, maybe even a hundred galaxies. Mm -hmm. I think the astronomy community kind of had to take a, a step back and say, okay, we really need to take this issue seriously. We really mm -hmm. need to start thinking about what these data are telling us and how it's going to reshape what we think about the universe. Because essentially what all of this is telling us is that most of the matter that we've been looking at, this luminous matter, mm -hmm. really only makes up a small portion of the matter that's in the universe. Mm -hmm. so, so essentially we kind of We've been we've been tricked, and you actually said this. We've been tricked. The universe has played a trick on us that we've been looking at this one thing, and the rest has been hidden, and we really don't know what it is yet. And so that kind of opened the floodgates for uh, researchers to really start thinking about: Is dark matter made of dead stars and planets, and kind of some of these other objects that we know about um, that we can't see? Or is there something else? And so the 1980s, you get to this point where there's kind of two camps and they're, they're starting to collect all this different data to try to understand what is it that's tugging on these stars? What, what is this dark matter? Because now we have to accept that it, it exists. She's making this contribution in the 1980s. She's mm -hmm. now 60 years old. That's also yeah. unusual. Right. I mean, yes. she's in her 60s or, or, or right. getting getting to that area. Right. And so that's mm -hmm. another unusual thing. Scientists usually make their great contributions a little earlier than that. So. Right. And, and she kept working on it. You know, so, so there's there, there's more. It, she she yeah. just kept being productive. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's very interesting. Um, yeah, so I mean, even the galaxy that I showed you, mm -hmm. uh, or the one that I pointed out there, uh, UGC 2885, mm -hmm. that's the next slide I have. I actually have a picture of it. Uh -huh. um, and this is Vera Rubin's galaxy. It's actually named after her. Uh -huh. um, and even into the 2000s, early 2000s, um, Vera was still looking at this galaxy, still looking for the farthest stars that she could find because she wanted to check that her data were correct. And she wanted to know, like, how far out do you have to go before stars speeds around the galaxy might drop off? Is there a point where mm -hmm. 
you get that curve that's flat and then it starts to level off and then it starts to dip back down, right? Because then if that's true in how the galaxy is put together, you might get to the point where you're running low on dark matter. Mm -hmm. And so there's not that matter to tug on those stars. Mm -hmm. Or the the other thing that she proposed (laughs) that I thought was really fascinating is like, maybe the dark matter halos continue and they actually touch other galaxies. So, Mm -hmm. you know, our dark matter halo could be touching Andromeda's dark matter halo. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's been evidence now to suggest that that's not the case. Um, But the fact that she was still curious Mm -hmm. well into her 70s um, to to ask those questions and try to find those answers, I thought really just spoke to how curious she was about the universe and about the world around her and, and really trying to understand what's going on. And, and, you know, just not ever losing that kind of childhood curiosity. So sort of like a science writer. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so as, true. as a science writer, you look at this picture. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I see these pictures of the galaxies and I say, you know, have, have uh, scientists ever tried to compare this motion and those speeds to fluid dynamics? Because it looks like it's all going down the drain. You know, if you, yeah. if you, like there's a drain in the center and it's all going around it and it's going down the drain. Now we know that there's black holes there. And yeah. so it's not, a, it's not a drain going down into nothing. But there's a circular thing that acts like a drain that we know mm-hmm. is there. And so, so that might be, I mean, the, the motion of the particles may be much more similar to fluid dynamics than other things. So anyway. Yeah. I no, I think that's true. I mean, I think there are so many different connections from lots of different fields. And, and that's one of the beauties of actually being a science writer is that you can go and, and kind of make these different um, relationships between the different fields of science. And, and actually, I think that's something that, that can make uh, the experience and also your writing much more rich is if you can draw, draw from these different types of, of sciences, like, you know, kind of applying um, fluid dynamics or other types of, of research. When you just look at something like this, it, right. it really blows your mind <laughs> that yeah. we can actually understand some of these things. Why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, how you got into uh, science writing and, and, and everything, because uh, we've, we've kind of covered Vera. Well, I want to get back to the ideas that she discussed in a little while, but yeah. this is, this is something that obviously, you know, you've done with your life and you've covered a whole bunch of different sciences. Mm-hmm. And, and as you said, you do walk away from one. If you do that, you walk away from one science to the other. This is, this is the analogy that they like over here. This is the analogy they like over here. And sometimes right. they're useful in other places. So mm-hmm. why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey? Sure. Uh, so I guess I had kind of always been interested in science as a child. My parents were both high school science teachers. And so I spent a lot of time in their classrooms and, and they did a lot of hands-on experience uh, experiments with their students. So I spent a lot of time in their labs doing different things, you know, splitting chlorophyll into its component colors and doing the flame tests where you look at the colors of different elements and what they um what they show. And, mm-hmm. and so um, I always had the fascination and I, I did a lot of science fair projects as uh, a high school student. Mm-hmm. And I always really liked writing the background section. I'll <laughs> <laughs> bet you were popular uh, on your team. Because... Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the not the paper. choice of everybody. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, I love doing the experiments too. That yeah. was, that was fun. But for, for me, it was like, how do all these ideas fit together? What's the history where where does this come from? 
And so at the same time, I started to do a bit of journalism. I, I was actually covering sports because I was also an athlete. Mm -hmm. And um, I went to the University of Tennessee and I was a swimmer there. And they actually had at the undergraduate level, a program in science writing in the journalism school, which is very mm -hmm. rare. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had an advisor who was very wise and, and realized that I liked writing and realized that I liked science. And she mm -hmm. was like, I think this is a perfect profession for you. And mm -hmm. so I took one of the first classes, which was actually called science writing as literature. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was taught and still is taught by Dr. Mark Littman. And I just fell in love with the idea that you could make science a beautiful story because mm -hmm. you could learn so much and, and still kind of make it feel like you were reading a fiction book, um, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. you were learning all this science along the way. And so I, I kind of started to do some science writing. I went and I worked at the Air and Space Museum after I had graduated from college. And it was there that I discovered Vera's story. I was walking around one of the exhibits and in, I was getting prepared for actually being an educator on the floor and interacting with guests and trying to engage them in the different exhibits. And so as I was walking around, I, I noticed that uh, the Explore the Universe exhibit there actually didn't have many women, uh, but mm -hmm. there was one that I <laughs> stumbled on. And, you know, she had these very, you know, curious looking owl glasses and, and seemed very serious. And mm -hmm. as I started reading, it talked about dark matter. And I had never heard of dark matter. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, at this point, I'm 22. I'm very young. I'm very green. I don't know what I'm doing. And and to to kind of think about the idea that most of the universe is made up of stuff that we don't understand. Yeah. That just blew my mind. And, and let alone that this woman had some hand in convincing the astronomy community that that's what the universe was made of. Mm -hmm. I, I just had so many questions. And so I started peppering my advisor with questions. And eventually he said, well, I am working on Vera Rubin's oral history. Would you like to come with me to interview her? And I, as a, you know, young science writer, you're like, absolutely. Oh my gosh, this is kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity. So I, I jumped at the chance and we did, we, we spent a day with Vera. We actually got to interview her husband along with her mm -hmm. and uh, that interaction, just the way she was so welcoming and so gracious and so mm -hmm. patient with all of the questions that mm -hmm. I had, for some reason, I just... I was going on to grad school um, in science writing, and we had to work on a longer piece. And, and one of my advisors there suggested that I, I, I write about Vera. And so I, I kind of made the decision to, to send Vera an email kind of randomly after mm -hmm. I had done the interview over the summer and ask if I could come to the telescope with her. Mm -hmm. And I thought she would say no. I thought for sure she would be like, no, you know, it's just not a good idea. I want yeah. to focus on my work. I don't want any distractions. And she called me. I mean, I sent her an email and she, she called me yeah. and she said, I am willing to let you come to the telescope with me, but I do have some uh, expectations of you, mm -hmm. right? That basically uh, this is a very serious time. I don't want to be interrupted while I'm working. So we kind of talked out all of, lo of the logistics. And before I knew it, I was going to the telescope with her. And um, so that kind of all got worked into uh, a thesis, kind of a, it was a 10,000 word piece about her. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
um, I, I, I wrote that I finished my graduate degree and, and then I, I didn't really think anything of it from there. And then yeah, probably, oh gosh, 10, 10 years later, uh, MIT Press reached out and said that they were doing this new series on uh, women in science and they had read my thesis and would I be interested in transforming that into a biography? And mm-hmm. I said, absolutely. And, and that kind of is what led to the, the deeper dive into her work and, and really understanding who she was as a person and, and trying to communicate that, not just for astronomers, but for everybody, just mm-hmm. the, the curiosity that made her who she was and, and also the principles she lived by that, that I think really made her successful. That's well, that, those advisors were spot on and giving you a good plan because uh, <laughs> that certainly worked. Now, we have, we have a lot of questions that have already come in, so Excellent. we'll cover those, and then I, I have some other plans about some of the ideas, but we'll, we'll do this first. We'll get the, the audience's questions in. Sure. Um, so uh, from one of our sponsors, Wonderfest uh, Science, every scientist may d- be disappointed, disappointed by the slow recognition of her his unusual findings in her life, did Vera Rubin express such disappointment with special vigor, or or did she accept it? I, I don't know that she was disappointed. I mean, I, I guess maybe perhaps you could say that. She was very outspoken about her work and, and the contributions she made, and I think she wanted to use that as an example of trying to encourage more women to, to go into the sciences, because mm-hmm. I think there was some hesitation there. So I think perhaps there was some frustration that she did express, but I think most of her focus was really on trying to make people excited about science and mm-hmm. make them curious and kind of draw them in. And, and, you know, she did address that there are challenges and there are things that you have to work through. And I think by her example, she gave women some of the tools that she used to be successful, you know, stay mm-hmm. curious, stay hungry. Mm-hmm. If people, if people doubt you keep working. And, mm-hmm. and I think the biggest one is surround yourself with the people who really are there to help you and, mm-hmm. and kind of just ignore or block out the, the people who are trying to bring you down. Sure. Um, because yeah. if you yeah, really tap into that network of supporters, that's, that's really going to be beneficial and kind of help you get where you're going to go. Yeah, as the question implied, I mean, it's true for men and women, but uh, mm-hmm. obviously when you have a, the extra cultural pushback against women, it's much harder. And now that pushback is a lot lighter, you know, right. and so it's a little easier, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not over yet. Um, mm-hmm. we're, not, we're not just saying, you know, and it's kind of ironic because you'd, you'd think at this point that everybody would be saying, why would we waste any of our intellectual resources? But, but you know, human beings are not willing to, to be that, light and easy about anything, I think. So. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, so I uh, have another question. Uh, since mm-hmm. the Big Bang, non-dark matter has clumped into galaxies, stars, and planets. Do we understand why dark matter seems to have remained more dispersed? Um, I think slowly it's starting to, to become better understood, but I think because there's so many questions about dark matter that we still have, it it is harder. Um, There are kind of these filaments and voids and and dark matter aligns with those. So 
um, even if you see all of the light matter around that, there's dark matter. And, mm-hmm. and then there are spaces where there's nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so somehow gravity and whatever interaction dark matter is having with that light matter, it, it is kind of helping with that clumping. But I'm not sure we actually have the absolute answer of yeah. how everything has come together. Yeah, we have hardly any idea what it is and where it is but but, yeah. but there there is there is the idea that uh, which i thought was a nice image uh, of uh, because in your book you said that dark matter has to be at least dispersed around the outsides of the these big spherical halos uh, yeah. around galaxies so it was like an eggshell uh, around yeah. the thing out, uh, around around the galaxy and then the center is this you know what we see is the galaxy but that, that's a pretty big eggshell around it um yes Something Absolutely. like that, but, but not yes. much more known. Okay, so uh, one from George Steffner, a question. When were black holes uh, in the center of galaxies first recognized? Or when was it first guessed? Right, uh, that's an excellent question. So there were a lot of um, hypotheses about galaxies, but the first evidence that, that black holes actually existed kind of didn't really emerge until the 1970s, right when Vera was starting to do some of her work on dark Mm -hmm. matter. That's really when you have some of these first observations of kind of random X-ray flares that then were traced to the idea that you had to have some center mass that we can't see, Mm -hmm. uh, drawing all that in and, and kind of creating or generating those emissions. And so that was the beginning. It was probably right around 1971, somewhere in mm-hmm. there. Um, and, even and, though, and that was pushed back on too, and yeah, and and people didn't, but people pretty much accepted it by the 90s that, that there probably yes. were black holes at the centers of galaxies. Uh, yeah. We interviewed Heino Falke a couple of months ago, who, the guy who did the first picture of the of the black mm-hmm. hole, or his team. Oh, did. that's excellent. Was was very very fascinating. All right. So uh, Barbara Sink asks, it is my hypothesis that dark matter is what creates or holds the substance from which matter is produced. Thoughts? Oh, that's an, I mean, that is an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. It, it definitely creates these gravity wells um, where you then can have some more interaction of light, um, the, the matter we can see, that kind of light matter. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's definitely a a good hypothesis and that does align with some of the ideas that are out there is that you kind of create some of these pockets of dark matter where then there's the interactions that lead to other types of matter that we can see. All right. Here's one from George Steffner, which if you can answer it, uh, you will get a Nobel prize. (laughs) (laughs) No pressure. (laughs) I, I now suggest that time is just an artificial independent Mathematical language variable representing Earth rotation. Existence is momentary, only there is no future or past. Mm. I think that's a deep one. Um, yeah, I, I don't so. know that I have the capability <laughs> to answer that question. I might leave that one to the, the experts. <laughs> well, there, there's, there's a lot of interesting ideas about that out there, about mm-hmm. time. Um, obviously, some people think that everything is created anew every moment or that, that, that each moment is independent. And that idea has been investigated quite often. But the idea, the problem with that idea is that there's no continuum of, mm-hmm. of momentum. And therefore, where would all the energy come from to create the new momentum each time? It's much, right. much simpler. And therefore, you know, with Occam's Raisin, you know, to say that there's a continuum of change going on. And not mm-hmm. these moments that you, you could, of course, always, because it's, we, we represent it mathematically, you can always cut it down smaller and smaller as time. Yeah. 
you know, but, but that's just a mathematical thing. There is no slice of time that you could do, no matter how small, that there'd be no movement or no momentum going on because it's a continuum. Um, the fact is the continuum is always in the present, but maybe the past and the present aren't actually, you know, non-existent. They are the previous version of the continuum and the future <laughs> continu- version of the continuum. But all the stuff mm-hmm. is always in the present. I, I always find, I mean, from a philosophical point of view, the interesting part of that question is we have these visual imaginations. Mm-hmm. And so we think, we think of our childhood and we go back to that home that we were in and we visualize and we say, I could go there. I could travel in time. That's why time travel is so popular. Um, right. Right. But I could go there. But you can't really go there. All the stuff that made up that house is doing other th- work now. We, we know that every seven years, almost everything in our body is off doing something else, and we have new parts, but it looks like we've got the same thing. So our yeah. bodies are a little <laughs> like a solar system, stuff coming in, coming out, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's a fascinating question, and we'll, we'll, uh, I, I'd like to talk about a few other things because you're a science writer like this, mm-hmm. um, looking at different analogies. Uh, one of the things that I find fascinating about the whole investigation of the universe and, and the galaxies, first of all, is that we're always saying, I look back in time when we see mm-hmm. a galaxy from before. Right. But you never really look back in time, just from what the, this question was about. You're always in the moment. What you see is a photon that has arrived here, mm-hmm. and you have assumptions based on our knowledge and our theories that tells you, what does that mean? It means that has come from a galaxy 80 million light years away, and, mm-hmm. and it took off at that time, but, but we don't see the past. Any more than if you go out into the Rocky Mountains and you look at the strata and you right. say, oh, I'm yeah. looking back in time because uh, 80 million years ago this happened. And 80, mm-hmm. We just know that. They, people didn't used to know that. They didn't no, look at the absolutely. strata and say that's what it means. And I, yeah. I think it's very important in science in general to, to I mean, the, the difference between science and intuitive belief is that mm-hmm. you want to have evidence. You, 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 right. want to, you don't want to just say, uh, like in this case, there's the, I, the, the analogy of the eggshell around the galaxy was funny mm-hmm. for me because there are uh, you know, people who, uh, their mythologies of the creation of the universe was an egg that was opened up you know, and stuff like right. that. And I'm, <laughs> right. I, and I'm sure there are people who will jump to the conclusion, see, I was true the whole time. It was an egg you know, yeah. because there's, there's this eggshell. <laughs> but that, that kind, those kind of intuitive leaps um, are very popular. Uh, mm-hmm. But they're not very persuasive. <laughs> yeah, um, they're not no, persuasive to scientists. So you have to have, you have, to have something reliable going on. Um, right. So, so we don't, it, it'd be nice, like you said, you, you talked about science writing, and I thought really useful to have as clear versions of these explanations of what the scientists are doing. Yes. You know, the, for everybody else to understand, because popularized versions that mash the ideas together you know, people have a, a, a basic belief about what Darwin's theory means, which mm-hmm. is a popularized version of Darwin's theory. And it doesn't have almost anything. Not, it has something to do with what he said. Right. But it doesn't have a lot to do with it. the eugenicists walking off in this direction and another right. group walking off in this direction. You know, they, they, they take a piece of it and say, well, I understand that. And then they walk off with it. But that's not what he really said. And I think science mm-hmm. writing about these big topics that people are fascinated that somehow touch on why we're here and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's crucial that they be uh, as clear as possible of what was actually said in the theory and not, because if you, if it's mushed up, um, everybody wants the mushed up version because they can't do the original version. Right. Right. And so, so they're going to walk away with a mushed up version. So first of all, 
thank you for being a science writer who does it clearly. That's, that's, a, <laughs> that's a very valuable, very valuable uh, tool. Um, and, and second of all, now we talk about some of the ideas from your point of view of looking at this. Mm-hmm. See, we look at, uh, I mean, the idea of taking the galaxies from what we think of them, what we see, these spirals, and they're not all spirals, you know, but, but uh, they're, they're in different form. Oh, before I go into that, I wanted to, yeah. to have you talk about one thing. It just reminded me when I got into the galaxies. There is a galaxy, you said, that, that part of it is going clockwise and part of it is going counterclockwise. <laughs> That's so unusual. Can you say a little, do you know anything about that? I just thought, did they, did two smash together going mm-hmm. in different directions and they haven't worked it yeah. out yet? Or it's just such a weird idea. Yeah, no, you're um, exactly right. That's exactly what happened was uh-huh. you had a galaxy merger and some of the stars go- kept going one way and some of the stars kept going the other way. Um, and of course, you know, like you don't see the dark matter interact. You, you only kind of get the residue of the, the matter we can see, the light we can see. And so, um, yeah, that's exactly what's going on with that galaxy is you had a you had a collision. And, and that's actually one of the really cool things about studying galaxies is sometimes you have to do a bit of forensics work to see it's kind of like studying unfortunately like a car crash or some type of accident you have to kind of go back and and piece things together to really understand what's going on and and Vera did a lot of that in her own work she really looked at each galaxy as an individual and and tried to understand its different characteristics and its different traits even though the, the broader theme was that they all acted in a very similar way. And now I'm going to go right off what you said about the forensics car crash, because this is, <laughs> was an idea I wanted to bring up. So there's a lot of assumptions in, in, in science about physics and the universe and the Big Bang and everything that mm-hmm. are, are interesting to me. But if you go back to forensics, you know, if, if there's a, a bullet uh, shot mm-hmm. um, and it, it fragments in a certain way, they have an idea about how it started, Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and if there's uh, an explosion and it all goes right. out one side of the car, then they have some pretty good idea. Why didn't it go out the other side or, or, yeah. or what must it be made of? And so there's all this knowledge that we develop over time to try to think things through. Right. Mm-hmm. So now we go to the Big Bang. Uh, obviously, we're not there uh, at the beginning, uh, but we have all this evidence of what it's like. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the arguments are about how come it didn't come out smoothly how come there's clumps how come and a lot of the theories are about explaining why would there be clumps but if we and and they always almost always say you can't look past the big bang right because we have no evidence for anything past the big bang right but 150 years ago someone could say i can't look past the surface of a rock because we have no evidence of that but what actually we find out well there's all kinds of pieces of why it turned out the way it did that tells us something about those rocks. Now, yeah. what, if, what if those clumpings and so on explain to us what was happening prior to the Big Bang? And that's why it clumps, because that's some more like what forensics are in explosions yeah. that we do now. If you said, uh, I, just an example, say the Big Bang is a huge black, uh, was a huge black hole prior to its explosion. And it condensed smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until it came to the level, wherever that level is, that it would explode. And it's basically an empty space because it's collected all the material around it. But mm-hmm. they're probably, you know, it probably will explode before all the material comes in. So there's like, like something like the Magellan clouds coming in when it explodes. Yeah. Then when it explodes, there's an explosion, but there's a little 
piece is already there. And then they all get blown out. And that would, at first, everything would go in the direction it was going. And that would tell us something about it. In addition to that, there'd be these unusual things which would tell us there probably was some matter that wasn't in the material that exploded, etc. So I I know that that's an unusual way of looking at it. (laughs) But but it seems to me that we do have some evidence, and it would be very hard to piece together, etc., etc., but we we do have some evidence that we try to explain, you know, like like the inflationary Mm -hmm. universe idea is there because this all happened so quickly. But that seems to be based upon the idea that nothing was there before. Right. And, and, and I don't see why that assumption is made, because that's basically saying out of nothing, this huge explosion happened when that might have happened. That, that could be true. Mm-hmm. But all other explosions come because right. of the momentum. You know, everything yeah. else we see comes from an explosion. So that's, that's one, one thing that people could say, hey, we can actually go past this by seeing... Because we're always going past what we see based upon right. our assumptions. Um, yeah. The other thing is very interesting in your book about the halos uh, around galaxies, these huge. Because the, the most common structure, it seems to me, at almost all levels, and they're all different at different levels. It's not, it's not um, just like fractal, you know, that it's always mm-hmm. the same at different levels. But, right. but the most common structure seems to be a sphere. Mm-hmm. And and it, it's it's more diffuse around the outside and more concentrated yeah. towards the center. Um, yeah. As we were saying before, the solar system is ninety nine point eight percent of the uh, matter is in the sun, and then there's mm-hmm. you know just a few planets that don't really mean anything, including ours. Right. <laughs> you know, relatively right. speaking. Whereas whereas in the galaxies, it's under one percent that's in the center, and and that is also interesting to me because if you look at the galaxies with the black holes. Um, if we don't understand black holes correctly, if, we, if we're like two orders of magnitude off, yeah. that's all it takes to put it all right back into normal matter again and no, no, no dark matter, right? Because we're, <laughs> so so it, it seems to me that that's, that's about all we're off, which is fascinating yeah. that we can get that close from so mm-hmm. far away. I mean, it's, it's amazing that we can figure out what's happened to the rocks. It's amazing yeah. that we can figure out that there's all this information out there. Um, yeah. that we're, we're analyzing and it's all left over and it's all right here and we're analyzing and, and, and we're the ones that are pushing back to what the causes and effects were instead right. of pushing back in time, right? Right, um, absolutely. So in your, in your star- story about this, were there anything, <laughs> any ideas that came up that, you, that when, you, when you were writing it that you said, I wonder if that makes any sense or I wonder, because this is what Vera did all the time, right? Right. I, I, I think that's one of the great things about her story is she's always saying, you know, well, that's the answer you guys have. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not so sure that that's the right answer sort of thing. Yeah. And, and did you when you talked to her, was she still like that when she was, you know, in her 70s and 80s? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, when it came to dark matter, mm-hmm. um, you know, she she completely kept an open mind that maybe yeah. dark matter doesn't exist. You know, she was very open to that. And, and again, kind of just always questioning assumptions, you know, what is the universe really doing? Um, what, what is this dark matter? She had, you know, she had questions about dark energy. She, she didn't study it herself, but you know, it was something that was very curious because now we're talking about the majority of the universe being dark, just something that we, you know, just forces and particles that we don't understand. Right. Um, which I think is the beauty of science, right? Every Mm. time you, 
find something, you open up a bunch more questions. And so I think that's what kept her going was just, you know, what are those questions? Um, and yeah, I, I just, I think that's just how her mind worked is always challenging the assumption. Yeah. And, and those are the ones who, who, who break through because uh, mm-hmm. if, 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 it's, it's very hard unless you keep asking because everyone's going to tell you, stop asking those questions. It's, it's like asking right. the question, why, when you're three years old, you know, to yeah. your parents, you know, at a certain point, everyone's always saying, stop that, stop that. We all, we all <laughs> believe this thing over here. And, 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 and ironically to me, it's like, uh, even in science, there's a sort of a religious attitude towards the ideas that are already there. Right. You know, there's an assumption yeah. of authority and so on and so forth. Um, and, uh, and I think emotionally we're not quite scientists yet, um, but we're getting there right. and we're getting closer and closer. And, and, right. and that's why we're making so much progress. And I, 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 I'm just a fan of saying it's that attitude that's going to make us learn more yes. and more and more and more. And, mm-hmm. and, and you can have a great deal of respect for Isaac Newton, for example, and say, amazing what he did, especially at his time against everybody else, all that kind of stuff. Much better than somebody who even comes up with a clear idea now because he was pushing against so many other forces. And -hmm. at the same time, you can say, but all of his numerology work on the Bible, I'm not interested in, right? You know, he he, he can have other ideas that are, are, are worthless to the rest of us. It's an intuitional thing that he found more exciting than what he was working on but obviously didn't crack it. And I, I think uh, it's a little tough in our society where anybody steps one step out of what somebody mm-hmm. uh, doesn't like, and then their whole, their whole um, contribution is, is suspect, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and it, yeah. I think it's right that we should be suspicious about people. Yes. It, that's absolutely part of the scientific thing. But in any case, uh, um, you can respect um, the contributions of people and still disagree with them like Einstein did. Yeah. You know, I, I think that that's the real scientific thing. You don't have to hate the people who got it wrong before or whatever, right. you know, because you know, no, no. yeah. there's going to be someone a hundred years from now that's going to be doing, saying the same thing about you, whatever, yeah. <laughs> whatever you come up with. Right. Exactly. It's just always asking the question. Yeah. Ask the oh, questions okay. and we keep, you know, the speed at which we're improving is, is wonderful. But we know, mm-hmm. we know how much more we have to go. So I've got one more question here before we finish mm-hmm. up. This is from Stuart. Can dark matter be regular matter from other non-three-dimensional parts of our universe, just like the 2D flatlander would be influenced by the 3D parts of objects which affect them but which they cannot see? I think that's a viable hypothesis. I mean, I think that's the thing is like we have to kind of throw all of those ideas out there mm-hmm. and then do what Vera did, start to collect data start to figure out kind of what can we rule in? What can we rule out? What, um, you know, what are other ways of looking at this, right? I think because dark matter, the search for it has been fraught with challenges. um, It's always good to keep those other options out there and and keep kind of pulling on them. Uh, Even the idea of modifying gravity bond, Um, you know, those are all things that we have to keep thinking about and, and keep pressing on. And and that's the only way we're going to get to the answer. Um, if we just, like you said, make the assumption Mm -hmm. and and kind of rule out any other type of idea, Mm. we could be kind of going down the wrong path. So I think it's important to explore all of these ideas and either collect data that support them or overturn them. 
And Vera did, did that too, because you, you mentioned this story when she was, at my, I don't know, either in her 70s or 80s already at a conference, and, and then mm. somebody asked a question. And she said, well, Mons, which is this modified, mm. uh, I think that also is something we shouldn't give up on. You know, I mean, right. it might have, it might have uh, an answer. Um, yeah. And, and uh, it's the, the big thing in physics, of course, is you know, both quantum mechanics and, and relativity theory are both very, very valuable, but we know that they don't mesh. mesh. Right. So it, it just seems we can say, okay, they're both brilliant, and they're, but, but something about them we don't understand. And it might be mm-hmm. that one is right and the other is wrong, but it might be that they're both wrong um, and that there's another way of looking at it that both of are now explainable. And, and uh, you know, there's been a lot of wild speculatory uh, mm-hmm. things, but that's, that's the advantage of science. You know, everybody can speculate. And, and if, they're, if they're very intelligent about it and have some reliable evidence and some data for what they're doing, then they're going to get other people to listen. And they yeah. should just hang in there for at least 20 or 30 years like Vera did, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Ashley. That was really great. Um, and I'd like to, again, thank uh, the Bernard Osher Foundation for uh, supporting this good lit thing and also the Wonderfest Science Foundation. Um, and so ends another event of the Commonwealth Club in its 119th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.